Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Andy Friedman. The sponsors are Tops, which is working closely with Andy. We're going to hear about that today, as well as Panini and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggs and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, My Old Team, and ComC.com. So, Andy Friedman, Renaissance man, I've been looking forward to this, to hearing about your hobby journey and your uh, Spotlight 70. It's happening right now, yeah, and and through the rest of the week. And uh, and it continues to happen, as we know about baseball cards. They don't go away. They don't go away, and then they keep coming, and Topps is uh, delivering them in many different ways. How is this similar to the Project 70, your Spotlight 70? It's similar in that it's a tribute to the legacy of Topps's uh, profound contributions to not only what they've accomplished in, in the world of baseball cards and collecting, but, but an homage to their legacy of graphic design and, and portrait photography. And with Project 70, you have uh, beautiful art collaborative achievements between Topps and a range of art paying tribute to many of the icons of the game and the, and the iconic images of many of their baseball cards. From 70 years, the Spotlight 70 collection is unique in that it's a single authored set. I'm proud and, and flattered to, to, to be that artist. And it really puts the spotlight on uh, some of the fan favorites of the game that also need to be pushed forward from generation to generation. I feel almost like a folklorist in this sense. Say, was Tops not heavy handed, but how much direction did they give you? Because they've got all their eggs in your basket. Did you have complete control over the subjects, for example? Because it's not very superstar or It's an eclectic, but important mix of baseball players from uh, yesteryear. They gave me so much freedom. It was such a dream come true as an artistic project for me as an artist. I've been drawing baseball cards my whole life. I've talked in the past about how I got back into drawing baseball cards on a more frequent level about a decade ago when I injured my hand and was coming back from an injury and I needed a safe place to just unfold without any self-judgment. And Baseball cards is just a safe place, almost like a, a painter wandering to their favorite landscape. The irony is if I didn't have this project with Tops, I'd be drawing baseball cards anyway. This is something I do between projects to get my creative juices stimulated. It's like batting practice. So this is just something I, I enjoy doing. I'm very passionate about and it really didn't give me many restrictions at all. One of the most famous artists in Dallas, Texas now is former president George W. Bush. That's know? right who took up painting and got training and has really enjoyed doing wounded warriors as well as immigrants, including the famous German immigrant Dirk Nowitzki. So he's picking subjects that are pleasing to him. Sounds like you're doing that. Were you a collector as a young boy? Absolutely. Collecting experience growing up. I got my first packs of baseball cards really as a non-fan of both the game and the medium of baseball cards. I would accompany my dad on uh, some errands and he'd stop on the way home at the you know, the pharmacy that would sell baseball cards. I think I was in second grade. And so I accumulated a little collection of 1982 cards, really without knowing much, of, uh, again, about the game or the players. And was just enthralled with the design and the, the aesthetic value of these cards, which became their intrinsic value for me as artistic relics. And guys who looked a little bit like my dad's friends, <laughs> they seemed familiar somehow. In 86, the Mets won the World Series, born and raised about 20 miles from Shea Stadium. That's when I really opened my eyes to baseball and really started to collect and, and understand 
the whole world of collectibles. It really, it might have even come as an offshoot of Garbage Pail Kids the year before. Uh, Acts and Garbage Pail Kids, were you, uh, were there, because that, there's more pop art going on there than there is in baseball cards. I had a lot of wacky packages growing up, for sure. So it would be baseball cards I'd get, and sometimes I'd get some wacky packages or older cousins that would give me theirs and these stickers that somehow felt like I shouldn't stick these anywhere. <laughs> Even though I wasn't a, <laughs> didn't know about their value, I, I collected them in the, in the yeah. truest sense. So Garbage Pail Kids was a natural progression. Same artist, even, who helped drive that empire. And a year after, yeah, baseball cards became what I collected. And that's when I went really, really into it. And we learned about the value of some of the cards. And we learned the reason why they were valuable because of the rarity. And, and then the story of the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, as, as we all know, rarity fell to the, the wayside except for Gem Mint 10. All relative, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's all, all relative. Were you equally enamored of the card fronts and the card backs? Absolutely. As I mentioned, I've been drawing cards my whole life. I have a whole collection of drawings on index cards, front and back, and, and really didn't know which I was more excited to draw. Does your ideal card back contain a cartoon? Does it contain interesting verbiage? Is there an artistic element to it or is it just the facts? The facts are a funny thing because they really do read like little novellas. If they're expressed that way. Just in terms of numbers, they're novellas. Case in point, I, I was so inspired by flipping over the back of a Mike Schmidt card. Now, in 86, when I opened my eyes to baseball and was a Met fan, uh, it was my hometown heritage. But at the same time, one of my favorite cards growing up was an 82 Schmidt. As I mentioned, he reminded me of one of my dad's friends. So he was like, hey, that, that's my favorite baseball player. <laughs> in 86, suddenly, my favorite baseball player, who I didn't really know too much about, MVP that year. So Mets and Schmidt really gelled for me. At the same time, I decided I'm going to sign up for Little League. And I didn't know how to play baseball. I didn't have any athletic confidence. I struck out every at-bat. How inspiring it was for me to flip that card over, whether there's a cartoon on the back or not, and see Schmidt's rookie year, 196, leading the league in strikeouts. And then the next three years, leading the league in home runs. What that told me was that it's possible to turn around. And did people make fun of him his rookie year? What was that like? It's still surreal for me to be able to say that I, I asked him these questions in, in a recent interview I did with him, an illustrated interview I did for The New Yorker called The Storybook Season, an interview with Mike Schmidt. We did it over Zoom and I illustrated the conversation. But I was sure he was not exalted as the star he became for, uh, I guess I heard nicknames that included the word folly in, in it, and, but, but the, he was able to come back the next year and, and lead the league home runs and retire number eight on the all-time list. They gave me hope. So in that sense, the back of the baseball cards, no matter what they looked like graphically, were inspiring and were like movies. Graphically, yeah, I, I enjoyed the cartoons. I enjoyed the talking baseball head on the back of the Tops 86 and any other 78, I think, had cartoons. That I, and I would copy them just like I would copy the Mort Drucker characters in Mad Magazine. But some of them were just two colors, an orange, or like a, a, a rusty orange and a darker rusty orange and that was enough for me to stimulate my sensibilities so the backs looked as profound as the front even in minimal strokes okay so let's go with mike schmidt for just a minute here you admired mike schmidt he's worthy but his success though was in persevering which you really picked up on but sometimes people have success not in persevering 
but reinventing themselves, which you've done in your professional eclectic career, is that you were on a path and then you had a detour and you pursued excellence with that reinvention. And so I, I think that's interesting too, not that Mike Schmidt persevered and then got it going and became this iconic, arguably, certainly in the running for the best third baseman of all time. Um, but you had to reinvent yourself based on your carpal tunnel, which I've had friends that have had that. And you're a self-declared perfectionist, which I don't always buy because most perfectionists, true perfectionists, don't even get anything done because they're still polishing the apple. Most perfectionists are just people that have really high standards. I put myself in that category. For example, you went from carpal tunnel, which made it impossible for you to do art in the style that you had been doing it, but you moved into a different style that was the most unforgiving style, but it worked against your, again, self-declared perfectionism that errors, you have to go with the flow of something that's just a little off, more impressionistic, and it's brought a beauty into your art that can't be photoreal or, or the old masters. And so do you, do you regard that now as a blessing? And do you buy what I'm saying? A hundred percent and a hundred percent. When people say, I'm so sorry to hear that you got carpal tunnel. Well, it's painful. You know, it's painful. <laughs> it is painful physically and it's painful emotionally especially if you have all of your self-esteem wrapped up in this high standard that you've studied your whole life to achieve and sum up your whole self-worth in achieving, it's painful, especially if you're someone who works with your hands in fine motor skill kind of way. But this process of reinvention, or I should say, I was only able to dive off that high diving board of forgiveness, as you say, self-forgiveness from uh, a path that I already cut numerous times since my graduation from the Rhode Island School of Design, where I was able to work for 18 hours a day if I wanted to, studying the oil techniques of the old masters. I literally spent two and a half years on one painting when I was in school. I didn't even finish it by the time I graduated. I spent seven months on another one. I joke sometimes if I didn't reinvent Okay, now you're talking about being a perfectionist. Okay, I that's, have to admit, that's right. you, you maybe are, are past me in that regard because it's pretty excessive. But again, it's a testament to your ability and your vision to see that there are improvements. But some of those techniques can be improved. Watercolor, you just do it. That's right. And that's the scary part. It's basically a record of your own self-acceptance because you can't cover up your mistakes and you can't plan, really. It's improvisational jazz. If you know your scales up and down, you could break all the rules and play whatever you want in the moment more easily. All I ever really wanted was to continue spending two and a half to three years on a painting. I, I wanted to be and intended to be the next Vermeer, the next Velazquez. Out of college, I didn't have the kind of life where I, mean, I paid off student loans most of my life as a young adult. I, I, I had to get a job and I knew I was going to have to get a job. I wasn't living in an insulated life where I could just spend all of my days working on, on paintings. And I knew that getting a job was going to impact my daily painting routine, which sometimes required three hours in the morning just to mix my palette. So I was equally as inspired through life by baseball and baseball stats and baseball philosophy, but also by the great artists, the great painters, also by you know, musicians, especially a musician like Bob Dylan, who made reinvention 
part of his constant, really, like New York City. It's always changing. And people, the danger is thinking the New York City you arrive to is the one that's permanent. But it's constant change is the only <clears throat> permanent, excuse me, aspect of it. <clears throat> when I suddenly had only a few hours a day to paint, or sometimes an hour, or sometimes a half an hour, I thought either I'm a painter who gave up because he had to get a job and can't be an artist anymore, or I'm an artist who's going to have to figure out how to make something in the few minutes that I have available to me. It throw away everything that I know and think I am, or throw away my identity. And it was at that point I started carrying a notebook and writing poems. I carried, we didn't have cell phones back in the turn of the century when I was working at the Union Square Farmer's Market. I got really into country music, expressing the most with the fewest amount of strokes. I, I started carrying around a Polaroid camera so that anywhere I was, I could take a photo and like a baseball card or an album cover, it becomes something tangible, something tactile, a moment or a record of the moment that the inspiration... The inspiration is a story, right? At your heart, you're a storyteller. You see the story in the cards, you see the story in the player, you see the story in the lyric, which then you wrap music around that. That's consistently how you're gifted. The medium is less important than expressing it in a way that the story comes out. And baseball cards are such a great example of that. Uh, Wacky Pack's Wacky packages as well, and garbage pail kids. There's a story, there's graphic imagery. That's one of the reasons I think sports cards are so successful and coming in the public eye because they check a lot of boxes. I don't think you're mainly a musician, but you're certainly a musician. You're certainly an artist of great accomplishment. And I think it's going to be really fun to see this unfold. I think it's to Top's credit that they're bringing in artists with talent and the freedom to express it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's a, a, a culturally relevant medium. And yeah, sure. Back in the old days, baseball cards started uh, with paintings, right? What's your painted question? tobacco cards. But they weren't. these weren't artists who were given free range to express themselves. They had a job to do and they were drawing these subjects the way the company asked them to draw it. So in this case, you have something entirely new in that, yeah, the Tonic brand is giving artists free range, not only to pay tribute to baseball players and create baseball cards, but express themselves freely. That's the art of the highest level. I don't care what the subject is.